this book is also an exploration of modern life through the lens of it ending. And that's one of the things that I just kept coming back to is the perspective that the apocalypse gives us on what we are cur- what we currently have. If it were to all fall away, looking back at it, how would we feel about it? How would we feel about our modern lives and the things that we spend our time on? Friends, to episode 214 of the Ink to Film podcast. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Emily St. John Mandel's 2014 novel, Station Eleven. All right, here we are, season six, James. I am super excited for this one. How are you feeling? I'm excited to be back. Yeah. I feel refreshed. I hope everyone forgives us for our long break. It always feels, you know, it was only two weeks, but it feels like really, really long. Hopefully absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? Right. But I am like genuinely ready to, to jump back into this season and, and starting with this project, Yeah, I think has really like been a part of that. I do want to take a moment to welcome any new listeners that might be checking us out for the first time. Just a brief uh, description of what we do here. Uh, I am a writer. Uh, James is a filmmaker. We both work in our respective industries, and uh, we break down book-to-film adaptations, diving into the book first, like we're going to be doing today, talking about what we can learn from it uh, as creators, and also just exploring like deeper themes, um, what the writer may have been going for, um, and then we move into the adaptation, and we do the same there, and we compare the two. Uh, talking about the process of adaptation. And then at the end of each uh, grouping of uh, book and film, we make a make a uh, decision uh, for each of us, which was the better version. Uh, so you can look forward to that at the end of the HBO miniseries that we'll be discussing in the following weeks. Uh, we will make a determination on what we thought was the better version. Uh, but today is all about the book. Better in the sense of like, we force ourselves to make that decision. We don't see ourselves as reviewers. We like to look at the material as creatives and kind of break down like what makes these these authors and filmmakers tick and, and sort of what their what their perspective was on these specific projects. So hopefully you stick around uh, through the entire project and hear that. Um, but anyway, yeah, today's all about this book by Emily St. John Mandel. Um, and we're going to start off talking general thoughts. Uh, we always begin with a sort of spoiler-free discussion. Uh, then we move into talking about the bio, what's known. Sometimes there's more, sometimes there's less. Um, just uh, a few minutes, uh, at least, talking about the person behind what we're covering. Um, and then we move into our spoiler discussion, which we will clearly say, okay, going into spoilers now. So if you haven't read this book, if you haven't seen the show at all, and you're just curious, you're still safe, we'll let you know when you're not. Um, and yeah, uh, that's that's basically what we do here. And we have a good time, and sometimes we have guests on, and uh, we'd love to have you stick around. And, and you can look back through our episodes. Uh, we consider them evergreen Um uh, so you can go back and listen to them, you know, whenever it is you come to a particular book or, or adaptation, because we definitely uh, are like that. We, we sometimes discover things from a long time ago and uh, talk about them in the modern times. So yeah. that's how it goes. 
and we've been doing it for like going on five years now six seasons technically this is our like sixth th- season. this year will be our fifth year at yeah. some point midway through the year yeah uh and over 200 episodes okay so that's enough about ink to film let's get into this thing um I, i'm really curious to know your general thoughts but i just before we get into that i just want to say this book is setting quite a bar for the year um yeah. it is it's like Holy cow! Uh, really, really high for me. Um, and yeah, I'm just curious to know general generally, what do you think of this book, James? Yeah, so you know, interestingly enough, I feel like we're setting a trend with the beginning of our seasons this year and the last. We started oh, yeah. with pandemic novels in a pandemic. Sure did. <laughs> last year we started with The Stand by Stephen King. Yeah, and so like we've talked obviously at length about what it means to be addressing something that was written before a pandemic when we're currently living in one and seeing how people would react. Um, but ultimately like going through this book, it's fascinating because a lot of the questions about life and art and what makes people happy. I think a lot of people are thinking about things, these things currently changing jobs, the great, you know, resignation and all of the things that people have talked about, but even like more personally for myself, the way that this book addresses art and what's important in life in a creative sort of sense with with art being performance or writing or acting there's some film stuff like the way that people have to go about their lives and weigh their day jobs and if that satisfies them versus the things that creatively interest them and the and how they can express themselves and this balance that some people strike and and the the way that at times in my own personal life I felt like you know I might not be work, doing work that feels as fulfilling but also you need to put food on the table but also you need to, you know, creatively explore yourself. And, and that this novel being a dystopian novel, that's kind of the pull into the story you're expecting to be driven along by that sort of plot. But in this case, I was really struck by like how much it was digging into like the psychology of what goes on in everyday life and then also what would potentially happen in a pandemic. And then that leads into all these little vignettes of what I thought the story was going in. Like it sort of sets this idea that it's going to give you different periods throughout a pandemic. And I thought that they were going to be sort of less connected, but as time goes on, these threads sort of form together to create this like strong narrative weave that I thought was really interesting. And it kept me guessing for a lot of the, a lot of the way through. Um, You're talking about a little bit about the structure, right? And, the, and how the story plays out. This is sort of a literary version take on a dystopian pandemic sort of fallout of society. Ninety, they, they, people. Some people say like ninety-eight percent of the population dies off, and uh, I think so in like, the book it's ninety-nine point nine. Actually, I think that's, that's the stat that nearly out. everyone. Yeah, it's not the first time there's been a literary look at post-apocalyptic, and, and and in fact, uh, uh, Emily St. John Mandel mentioned The Road. Uh, by Cormac McCarthy as, as something that is kind of an influence on this book, um, which I can yeah. see. So we can well, it's the that. first that, that I've personally read. We tend to cover literary novels throughout the podcast, and a lot of them I'm finding to be really rich and, and interesting and with many layers. And the, and the ways that I'm thinking specifically of, uh, I'm thinking of ending things, which we covered last year, mm-hmm. and the philosophical ways that it explores life and the, like this story in particular, the normal normalities of life and things that we take for granted and the ways that like it just gives good perspective. And then obviously having this novel being written in 2014, 
And then having lived through a pandemic, the way that it's giving good perspective about things to be thankful for. Yeah. And just like how, you know, this was not the worst case scenario. Maybe that is possible. And, you know, there's lessons to be learned there. But just the foresight to write a novel like this, I I was overall, I was just completely enthralled. And the, you know, the plot kept, kept me guessing. And then on top of that, a lot of philosophical perspectives I hadn't thought of in terms of you know, life and art. And, and I, I found that to be really engaging. So yeah, for, for me, man, uh, this book is sad and beautiful and poignant and just hit me on, in so many levels. Um, I, I, w- I was really taken with the mastery that is being displayed for a really young writer. Um, I thought this book has an excellent structure that is complex yet very meticulously crafted. Um, I could feel intention behind the, the way the scenes transition from one to another. Um, her, her use of white space, um, her understanding of language and how to lend power to things um, by the way it is laid out within the book, um, the way that she positions her language within a sentence, um, I, I was really taken with that. It was approachable prose. Um, often when you talk about liter- more literary leaning stuff, which I don't know if this would be considered a full literary, but regardless, genre, genre discussions can be interesting to people within the industry, but I feel like less interesting to people outside of it. So I don't want to talk too much about it. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, selfishly, it's interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, she has said that she uh, resists being called a science, th- this novel being called science fiction. Um, it won a science fiction award. Um, much like we talked about with Margaret Atwood. It was, I was heard comments on it reminded me a little bit of Margaret Atwood. Um, she says that she doesn't, she doesn't think this is science fiction because it doesn't employ any uh, fictional science. Um, and I don't know if that's a definition we all want to get behind, but <laughs> regardless, um, it, it does feel more literary yet when you say that, I think there's a perception that the prose is going to be somehow dense or so poetic that it is not approachable. Um, and I did not find that to be the case at all in this book. I actually found it to be a really engaging, easy read. I felt like it had a pace to it I wasn't expecting because of her use of white space and because of her you were talking about little vignettes and that's not just within the chapters that's within with like within the subsections and the scenes like you get these little moments and it's scattered all throughout um, and you take all of that and you you keep it moving um, and you you were also jumping back and forth through time which I don't think is a spoiler to say that's part of the structure that's so interesting is that you have really two different timelines playing out simultaneously and informing each other. And to me, the structure was based off of this like narrative um, importance. Like uh, It was more important to tell the story in the way that the book tells it than it was to follow things chronologically. Um, and, and I think that's, that's like the sign next-level storytelling to me. Um, so I was really impressed with that. And... All that's to say that, that like this book is is expertly crafted, yet you have to deliver on what you're doing, and she does because this book is also an exploration of modern life through the lens of it ending, and that's one of the things that I just kept coming back to is the perspective that the apocalypse gives us on what we are cur- what we currently have, 
if it were to all fall away, looking back at it, how would we feel about it? How would we feel about our modern lives and the things that we spend our time on? Um, and especially living through a pandemic and knowing yeah. the, the severity of this one versus a fictionalized version of what could be the worst case scenario. Yeah. And, and you know, like this is this is the stuff that like I think everybody who <laughs> is aware of the, the danger of pandemics was worried about when like COVID was really first starting to hit. Like I know I had my my like panic attacks over this shit, like thinking that maybe that was going this way. Um, luckily, luckily, uh, not not as bad as this. But um, as a device. It, it grants this perspective of you can look back at modern life and and it gives you the ability to be very critical of a lot of things. But I like that it's not it's not only that it is it is critical and it is it does look at things and go like, ah, I can't believe we wasted so much time on this. But at the same time, it also celebrates things about modern life and celebrates things about our ability to engage with art and seemingly superfluous things and we're not just surviving right and that comes back to that quote that is so central to this and that survival is not sufficient um which is an important quote so uh yeah i think that 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 gets at the heart of what this book is about and absolutely uh delivers so glowing recommendation from me i i love this thing and uh it's gonna be hard for something to beat it honestly i think at the end of the year we're gonna be talking about this book uh and last looks of 2022 that's my guess (laughs) Whether or not it's top spot, I don't know. You know, we have a whole year to go. We'll see. Maybe this is going to be a fantastic year. I hope so, with of just amazing reads. But I think this is yeah. going to be in the conversation for sure. I think it's something that can help too. Is like if the HBO adaptation is on love the level of something like this and and de- delivers on something like all the concepts that are built up in this and and can deliver, especially again in 2022, still living through a pandemic, the ways that they can tweak things and adjust things and think about things. In different contexts and, and clearly they're speaking to us directly as a as a group of people who are still going through a pandemic like right. they're they're going to be addressing that i'm going to be really interested to see what the hbo series was able to modify knowing that they were coming out during covid right <laughs> um versus this book that was written in 2014 so so before covid was a thing there's mentions of like the swine flu and some other uh pandemics that never hit the level of covid um and uh you know it's it's fascinating i would have loved to like talk to to her during covid a little bit find out what her thoughts are on it because wow yeah and the underlying idea is that like the the people who are acting in this show and the people who are producing the show are actively social distancing wearing masks like having to deal with all of the pandemic things in a show that's a fictionalized like more extreme version it's going to be very interesting to dig into so I have so many more thoughts and specifics that I want to get into, but we will save those for our spoiler talk. Uh, first, I want to tell you what little bit I could find about the author, Emily St. John Mandel. Um, she is pretty young and fairly new, uh, relatively, and because of that, there's not a ton out there. Um, but here we go. So Emily St. John Mandel was born in 1979, uh, so approximately 42, 43 years old. Um, she is a Canadian novelist and essayist. She has written numerous essays and five novels, uh, which in order are Last Night in Montreal, The Singer's Gun, The Lola Quartet, Station Eleven, and then her most recent novel, The Glass Hotel, and then I think she even has an upcoming novel that has not been released yet. Um, The Glass Hotel, 
uh, by the way, was like a book of choice by Obama. He talked about like his favorite books of 2020, and and this was one of them. So she's continuing to have this like fairly meteoric rise. Um, but really, I think that took off with Station Eleven. Um, the, uh, the 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 novels that came before Station Eleven were uh, had similar discussions about what genre they were um, because they were ostensibly crime novels. But she resisted that as well. She didn't want to be pigeonholed as a, as a crime writer. Um, and uh, similar, when Station Eleven comes out, people are like, oh, science fiction novel. And she's like, I don't know if that's a science fiction. She even calls it a theater novel. Um, so I think this, this, is, this is something you see every now and then from authors not wanting to be pigeonholed. And I totally get that. Um, I, I think sometimes it's like you can still embrace genre without saying, like, I am a genre writer as if that is somehow a dirty thing to be called. Um, but I don't know if that's what she's trying to say, but I just, I, I perceive that sometimes in these, these resistances of like, Oh, I don't, don't call this a sci-fi novel. Don't call this that. Um, however, I will say me and you both talked about it and we were like, is this book science fiction when we were trying to figure out like what genre, because we like to like cover different genres. So it's a, it's a legit debate to have, I think. Right. And that's what I was going to say is just like, I don't know that I would classify this as science fiction, having read the whole thing at this point. So I understand the distinction here for sure. Like, I don't think that if, if you walked up to somebody and said, here, read this sci-fi novel, like that's that's not really doing it due diligence. Yeah. I mean, it is um, it's it's really more about the post-apocalyptic genre, right? Is that a science fiction? Is that inherently a science fiction genre? Because the idea of an apocalypse and living through an apocalypse is getting into sci-fi territory. You know what I mean? Some people would argue yes. Some people would say that is not in and of itself a marker of science fiction. So, yeah, it, we'll leave it up to you, listener, <laughs> whatever you think. Um, you know, that it doesn't ultimately matter. Right. Um, regardless. So she was born in Comox, British Columbia uh, to a Canadian mother and American father. She moved with her parents and four siblings to Denman Island off the west coast of British Columbia at age 10, where she was raised. I thought that was interesting because there is a uh, certain characters talking about living in a specific island that is like a small town removed. And so I I like when I saw that, I was like, okay, so she's touching on her own life for this, Um, you know, which we often see authors do. She's definitely doing that here. She also studied contemporary dance in the School of Toronto Dance and Theater, um, and she lived in briefly in Montreal before relocating to New York City, where she now lives, uh, with her husband, who is also a writer and a playwright in particular. Um, and she has mentioned in some of the interviews I was watching that she knows the sort of off-off-Broadway scene uh, really well in New York, where there's a lot of these working actors who just are doing it for the love of the art because they're not making a lot of money uh, on these, you know, on these on these productions um so i i think that's all interesting background right like she she has this experience growing up in this small town in this unique place she studies dance which is a very theatrical performance performance type thing she's a writer so she inherently is going to be studying art and uh and and thinking about the ways in which art uh leaves a legacy interacts with culture um, and then you, you, you also have this husband who works in theater. And so she has all this, you know, cause clearly theater is an important thing. Um, I guess not clearly if you haven't read the book, but theater is a very important thing in this book. Um, as there's like a traveling troupe. And, uh, I, I think that when she was writing it, I'm like, this, this has to be coming from firsthand knowledge. It didn't feel like something that you could just research. And sure enough, she does have this firsthand knowledge, you know, at least and on that level. 
So it's a, it's a cool example of somebody who is writing what she knows, which is like a, an axiom, right? Uh, and, and writing, write what you know. Um, yet she is writing about, <laughs> you know, an apocalypse uh, through a pandemic, which like we all are a little more familiar with the idea of now. But in 2014, definitely not the case. So uh, it, it's how you can start with things that you know, but then you can use uh, some sort of speculative or storytelling thing that is outside your experience, um, but still has this core that's built on a foundation that is particular to you. Um, and I think this is a great example of that. Um, and it is, uh, I think, also notice, notable that this was her fourth novel um, because it, it is such a sure hand. I was shocked because I was like, oh, is this is this a debut novel? Because I couldn't believe it. Um, it's not. <laughs> so that made me feel a little better because it's like, okay, she had a little bit of practice getting up to this um, because I, I just found this thing to be masterful. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, I'm just really interested to know like what her, what, what, uh, was it the glass house? Uh, sorry, the glass hotel. I'm curious what that book's like. Um, and her, any upcoming novels she has, I'm curious about that. So, um, because I, I was really taken with this thing. I, I said it before, but the foresight of, of, I, and I think probably swine flu played a part in that because that was something that we lived through that, you know, did kill a lot of people and it was pretty severe, but like the foresight to know as everyone we had heard, there's something bigger coming. A large flu is like the, one of the scariest things that you can deal with. Speaking of Obama, he's, you know, he's the one who said that like that was the thing that kept him up at night when he was president was worrying about a pandemic. And, you know, and clearly it's because you can't get people to listen, as we have well learned. <laughs> and that and that's one thing that this book doesn't really get into. Um, and how could it right? like that? I feel like we we definitely learned a lot going through COVID um, and this book and, and much like a lot of pandemic novels that I've read. It deals with the severe, fast-moving, like act of God, you could call it, or uh, natural disaster on on just an unbelievable scale that strikes down society in the over the course of like days, and like we saw that in the stand, we've seen that here. Um, I I don't know if it's laid out in the road. I don't remember specifically how that apocalypse goes down. I don't think it is. I think we're just kind of in a post-apocalyptic world. But, um, yeah. and, you know, there's all these post-apocalyptic fiction. Outbreak, Contagion, World War Z, like, yeah. I am legend, yeah. And we've talked about a lot of these, right? Often involves zombies, <laughs> but not always. Um, but regardless, um, it happens fast. And, uh, that, you know, that's very different than what we're actually living in. But um, because of that, you're able to sort of quickly get to the post-world life and talking about um, the comparison of the two. And, and she does that here. Um yeah, that that's her. I, I mean, I, I watched a few interviews with her, um, you know, really interesting person, um, very insightful, uh, loved listening to her talk about this book and um, talking about her influence of the road. She mentioned she mentions the the Canical of Leibowitz, which is a book I have not read, but I have heard about um, as being a, a, a big influence. Sounds like she is well versed on uh, post-apocalyptic fiction. And yet uh this book is different in a lot of ways. And I think that's something that we can, we can revisit as we go, right? Like the ways in which this is unlike other post-apocalyptic fiction we have consumed, because that's like a pretty common genre, right? Like in video games, of course, but then you also have like Mad Max and you have action stories. There's, it's just, it's a very common uh, genre in some ways, yet this feels special to me. Um, and, and because it does things differently. And I think exploring how it's different and why it's different is, is going to get at the heart of this book. 
Yeah, and I, I, you, you mentioned before, like, this isn't necessarily the first literary post-apocalyptic story, but for me, it kind of was. And one of the things that, you know, we're talking so much about post-apocalyptic, but at the same time, this story surprised me in the ways that it wasn't about the pandemic specifically, or, or at least the plot and the idea of the characters overcoming it and, and that sort of thing that you expect from a post-apocalyptic story like that. To me, it was almost like more fringe. Like it was like, let me use the post-apocalyptic setting to analyze the psyche of a human living through it in a way that I hadn't really experienced before. Because I think a lot of times, you know, the idea of marauders coming and, and uh, you know, people being kidnapped and taken and, and, you know, child brides and all the stuff that this sort of has in the fringes. It's it's not as much about that. It ends up being when you're when you're more invested in the characters. But I would say the first like. 80% of the novel is more just like an exploration of like how we got to this point and how characters are coping with it and how characters are sort of waxing nostalgic for their lives and especially characters who lived through the the t- the small things that are we see as insignificant that people latch onto in the beautiful ways that the author is able to like explore that and exp- and describe that like i said before it was just like an it was a surprising perspective shift in a story like this that, that I wasn't expecting. She does a thing that I haven't quite seen yet where she really draws out the exploration of what it was like to live through the fall of society. Um, and to me, that is always the most interesting part of these kind of books. Like, I, I, I love those parts of The Stand I find very interesting, whereas Stephen King, like, leans into the horror of it. Um, she has a very different goal in mind, I think. And, and it's like the horror of it is alluded to. And I can imagine that like horrific things are happening. But the characters we're following are very um, different kinds of people than I'm used to following, right? These are not badasses, you know, for the most part. It's like these are just everyday people. These are actors and performers and writers and business people and, uh, you know, a celebrity and like so on and so forth. And um, they are just trying to find their way and, like, the complete confusion and disbelief um, that goes on and the uh, trying to wrap your head around it and just how, like, unreal it would be. Um, I think she does a great job of capturing that. And uh, through these characters and their lives is able to explore a story that with um really Arthur Leander is at the heart of it and um it connects from pre-pandemic to post-pandemic uh world and um plays out in this way where these little mysteries are set up and delivered set up and then drawn out and they draw us through the novel in a way that I I, I again felt was masterful but and, and I think leans on that background she has in writing these kind of crime mystery books um that she would balk at being called that but like i think that shows someone who understands the value of mystery in fiction and having like little mysteries that you are threading in that you then find out at different points in the book like oh that's an answer to that question i had from before where did that come from why is this the case um so there's all these things that just draws us through this non-linear story that still for me never felt I never felt disoriented. I always felt like uh, I understood the motivation. Like you'd have a character look at a photograph 
and then you the next section would be in the time of the photograph. And it was like that was like a film thing to me. I was like, film like filmmakers do this all the time. I'm so glad that you brought that up. I uh, specifically wanted to like bring a certain section from the book and talk about it. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about how cinematic that felt. Yeah. Because it is this moment where they're going back in time in a way that feels like you said so cinematic. You're going. It feels like you're going straight into the photo. The characters, uh, Kirsten's looking directly at this photo of Arthur and I think Miranda. And they go into the photo and it's the moment of them like running out of the. They're they're somewhere. Some paparazzi snaps this photo of them running out of somewhere and it talks about that night and then proceeds to spend like an entire you know, I think there's like nine parts. So like an, a ninth of the book in that past section. So it's in, in that way, it is so well threaded and that transition felt like a film transition. It felt like the kind of thing that you, because like that's something visually that you can do to interestingly lead someone back into the past or something like that. And I was gonna ask you like, is that unique? Do you think that that's something that authors should do more of? Because to me, that's how I would feel like I could write a story is through a film lens. Yeah. Like that's that's how I would envision scenes if I was going to write even a novel. I think it's really cool. And it's something I've seen a little bit of here and there. Um, it's definitely done. Um, I, I I do feel like this is a film influence on her. Um, and she's even said that this is a book where she's like le- leaning on visual storytelling because you have actors, you have performers, you have theater and all this stuff. And and so I think she's very, I, I to me that felt very f- much like how a film would do it. Um, but you see authors do similar things um, and, and motivate flashbacks. And I love that. And I think that that is a great way to think of flashbacks um, because often people don't like them in, in narration because they feel like, oh, I want to get back to the, the present story and I hate having to go back in time. Um, but she does a great job where I never felt that way. I was equally invested in both parts. And, and you're also not ever in any one section for so long that you really start to miss the other one because you're going back and forth. And the way that she was able to keep it from getting too complex and too uh, confusing uh, was amazing because, uh, and, and I think those transitions are key in doing that. So it's something that I personally want to remember and I want to lean into because when you're learning about writing, uh, at least when I was, um, one of the things that I was told was that you can write a book chronologically, but when it comes time to like figure out the order of that, but you're going to present the narrative in, you should be thinking about it as like, what's going to be the most impactful and best in service of telling a good story, not necessarily chronologically. Um, And often I find that I tend to think chronologically. I tend to write chronologically, but it's nice to remember that that isn't always the best way to tell a story or, or could be, there could be better ways. Um, and you can use devices like this to make it more seamless. And uh, yeah, it's absolutely a lesson. We talk about things we trying to learn. Like this is absolutely a lesson I'm going to carry with me. And, and we've seen a little bit in other places, but it, it just drives that home about how uh, powerful that can be. We've read Agatha Christie. We've read a novel like this, like you said, influenced by sort of like crime fiction, um, that that sort of thrives on the the propulsion of reveals and red herrings and do you think that in all types of stories those those that's rewarding and and like do you think readers engage with that because it's like these little puzzles that they they can try to predict and track in their minds and and along the, is that something to keep investment or do you think that there that doesn't need to be the case some of the time and and like a straight narrative might work better because to me 
it, it reminds me of like to to boil it down to something really basic. It reminds me of shows like Lost that people people describe as like mystery box fiction. And is there like a like a critical mass? Is there a point at which you can't return from so much of these reveals? And I, I don't know. I guess my question overall is just like, do you think that there's a place for it in all fiction or is it specific stories? I think there could be. Um, I think it's going to depend on if that's something that the writer wants to engage in. I do think having uh, having mystery is a good thing. Like you there. If, if everything is like as it seems and there's no mystery, the only mystery remaining is what happens next. Um, and that in and of itself can be enough, right? That is still a mystery. What happens next? I want to know. Um, but having these other little sub mysteries, um, I think just adds, adds like a, an overall magnetism to the story that draws you through. Like, cause you, you even subconsciously sometimes don't even realize that you're trying to figure out, Hey, what, what was this thing? What was this little detail? What did that mean? And that can be very hard when you're on the other end of like realizing when you're you're employing it in a way that's going to be interesting and not frustrating. Um and that's often that's found in revision and and really thinking critically about the reader's experience going through the book versus um your the author's experience who knows the answer to all these questions. Now, to speak about a little bit about the the mystery box thing, I think sometimes it gets a bad rap because we have experienced in pop culture mystery boxes that don't have satisfying answers. And when a mystery box leads to nothing or leads to unsatisfying or only leads to more mystery that, that just spirals out of control, that is, in my opinion, is not going to be satisfying. Um, but that is not the case here. Like, I feel like all the mysteries by the end of the book were basically wrapped up um, and it, they were satisfying. And if that's the case... I think it just adds to the thing, right? Like, uh, and and I feel I feel really it's it's about. Do you feel satisfied when you get to the end of the book? And I did. Instead of opening up a mystery, opening up a reveal, and then having it have another sort of little intriguing clue that's going to lead to something else, if you give like full reveals that are like shocking big moments, uh, I think that that's what people are looking for, right? Like, like we're we're about to get into spoilers, but like there's there's a big one that happens that I didn't see coming. And it was really satisfying and getting like the finite, like, boom, here's a reveal. And that that sort of mystery has been solved. And then moving on, it's it's intriguing because the mystery is satisfying. Like we learn who someone is and then it continues to ramp up to to then us being more invested in the character and then sort of a climax with them. I mean, and that's and you're also like talking about how it was really smart of her to find mysteries that she could she could create narratively and in not feeling like she's cheating us, um, the withholding of information that could have been given from the beginning and what to give at the beginning, what not to give at the beginning. We, we, you know, there's a lot to actually break down here, but I think it's time to get into the actual plot of the thing so we can talk more specifics. So if you haven't read this book, check out now. We will be spoiling it, uh, the entire book, um, but just know we highly recommend it. And you should read it. Um, and at the very least, if you've if you've seen the show and you kind of know what happens and that way, you're probably safe to continue on and get more of a feel for what the book's like. So during a production of King Lear at the Elgin Theater in Toronto, Jeevan watches as the actor playing Lear, Arthur Leander, has a heart attack. Since he has begun training as a paramedic, Jeevan tries to resuscitate Arthur, but is unsuccessful. Instead, Jeevan comforts one of the child actors in the production, Kirsten. After leaving the play, Jeevan goes for a walk in the snow and receives a call from a friend who is a doctor in Toronto. 
he warns Jeevan to get out of the city as the mysterious Georgia flu is spreading rapidly and will soon become a full-blown pandemic. Jeevan loads up on supplies and goes to stay with his brother, Frank. Many of the actors, actresses, and others that had gathered in to mourn Arthur's deaths die within the next three weeks. Okay, so I, there's a lot more that happens here early in the book, but I think this is a good place to stop because um, the setup. This is the setup. And this is the thing that we start with. The characters were first introduced with, to and mysteries that begin to to pile up. Um, what did you think of this start, this beginning? Yeah, this I, I think is part of the misleading the audience into thinking that it's going to be sort of more disconnected of a story. And I think that that's a good thing because I really thought that this was just going to be like a snapshot. I think this happens in a lot of pandemic novels, right? You're seeing this. This is unrelated to the pandemic. Yeah, like you kind of think that he's dying because of the disease. Like this is the first guy to die of the disease, but it's not. It's not. Yeah. And so and, and you know, that has ramifications. But it, the way that the story then in the second chapter, I think, is basically saying like all these people would be dead within a week or something. Yeah. So actually, let me stop you there. There's there's a particular line you're referring to. And I want to talk about it because I think it is interesting to look at from a storytelling perspective. It's the end of chapter two. And at the very end of the chapter, uh, you know, uh, she says, of all of them there at the bar that night, the bartender was the one who survived the longest. He died three weeks later on the road out of the city. And that's the first, like, mention we get of, the of like, this some sort of global thing. Uh, well, it's not even said that it's global, but some sort of mass death. Other than that, we had just been following this weird event at a theater all the way up to that moment. And then she ends the chapter right there. Um, and, and that is like knowing when you're when you're when you're sort of dropping a bomb on the reader um, and, and giving that hook that makes you want to keep reading. And, and um, I think it's just really clever. Yeah. And it worked. And I, you know, reading into what I thought the first scene that recontextualizes everything. Right. right. Like you're like, oh, shit, like this is the last this is, a, again, a vignette of one of the last nights of the pandemic. And. Uh, you know, we don't realize I didn't think that Arthur was necessarily as famous as he was when we were first reading the scene. So that continues to create intrigue and and like sort of where he was at as a professional at that time and a performer. Um, Well, it creates tons of questions, too. We're talking about mysteries like why the first chapter of a book is very important. And that is definitely the case here. This is extremely important scene that we will come back to multiple times. Why? Why this scene, this guy, this random, like, it's such a weird thing to focus on. Um, And yet it's the entire novel spools out from here um, and then returns to here even eventually, too. So it's it's really cool to see that. And again, you're talking you're creating that mystery in the reader who's wondering why this why this scene, why this why these people. And I think it's signaling to you right away that it's for one, it's going to be so art centric, which is something that I've really yeah. enjoyed about this because it allowed for pop culture references, literary references. It allowed for all of these things that I think there's a certain nostalgia that lives in the consciousness of, of the world right now. That and really probably always. I just am seeing it because we're in the middle of it. Um, and you know this this nostalgia then will play out because you know they're performing King Lear and and the way that art plays a role in this. Eventually, we get to the chapters with Kirsten, who was like in a traveling troupe of performers, and we learn eventually that Kirsten was a part of this King Lear. Yeah, she's the child. She's the child that I mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, so things start to connect in that way, right? Right, which is exciting and fun. But just to analyze it from like the art perspective, like I, you know, 
I think both of us have had this conversation before, but this idea of like art is legacy, right? Like art is what will outlast us all. Art is what a lot of people find fulfillment in. Some people don't, which we actually get addressed in this story a few times. And, but for me, as somebody who does like that idea of art outlasting, art being the most important thing, because it is this true expression of like humanity, the way that it's just addressed in the story and, and the importance is brought is not only just fun, but it gives like a mythos and like an importance to not only the story that's being told, which is in itself art, like this novel that we read is art. Um, so it's just, it, it, you know, it's it's talking a lot about things that we think about a lot. Yeah, I, I you know, I totally agree. I have a lot of thoughts in this, in this vein. Um, and it, it's funny because I knew that that's what this book was about. Like I'd heard that. Um, I, I hadn't, yeah. And that idea is kind of trite in and of itself. It's like, yeah, okay, art's important. Art, art is, you know. So, like, at first you're kind of, like, shrug it away. You're like, yeah. Well, okay. and then on top of that, pe- people can kind of feel about like that about post-apocalyptic stories as well at this point. Like, if you, if you walked up and said, this is a post-apocalyptic story again... It's like, I've read plenty. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. Um, but she she does, I think, spotlight that early on and say, like, uh, the troop you're talking about, uh, they know that like, they like to congratulate themselves that they're preserving art. And then they all like laugh about it because it's so ridiculous. Right. Like, um, so she, she sort of lampshades that. But it is an important part of this book. Um, but it, it, and one other thing I want to address is that this can seem like a uh, navel gazy creator stuff, right? Like a bunch of writers and actors and performers talking about how they're the most important people in the world. Right. right. Um, and, and that can seem off putting to people who maybe aren't in the creative arts. Right. Um, it's kind of like the, you talked about how Hollywood loves movies about itself and will tend to <laughs> love it. Go look at all the nominated films. Yeah. 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 It reminded me, I was thinking about that. Um, and this is gonna, this is gonna go right into that, that sweet spot too. You know it. Um, however, in defense of it, art and entertainment, if we, maybe we remove the word art from it a little bit, right? Like entertainment, the things we, we, we consume for our enjoyment, um, from TV shows to, to, you know, web comics to graphic novels and just and things we read, obviously all these things are both the byproduct and progenitor of culture. Not not only are they coming out of us, but they also inform and in, in all of our lives. And this book is all about that weird interplay and how when you remove so much of humanity and society, like what's left and how do we reconcile um, art that was made in a time that feels so disconnected from the present moment? And what what is the point in even looking at it? What is the point in all of this? Um, well, and and I felt felt it was so bizarre in the ways that we are express we are experiencing a story that is pre pandemic at this point, and the characters within the story are addressing Shakespeare pre technology and also living in a in a in an era of plague and all of these other so like the story is looking back at something like like. Uh, Shakespeare's era and we're looking back at this era which is pre-pandemic for us as well so there's just so many layers that have been added to the story like even after its release and, and that's interesting because we've talked about how I felt like the stand lost a little bit of the shine having lived through COVID I don't know that that's the case for this novel 
Uh, and in fact, this novel almost works better now um, because we have directly seen the way our culture reacted to a mass death event. Not in this scale, but still, like, in some ways, there's a lot of similarities. Um, so in, in that way, this this novel holds up amazingly well, considering it was written before this crazy thing happened. Um, okay, I'm going to move into the next section of plot here so we can keep things moving. 20 years later, Kirsten is part of a nomadic group of actors and musicians known as the Traveling Symphony. Kirsten, who was eight at the time of the outbreak, can remember little of her life before year zero, but clings to a two-volume set of graphic novels given to her by Arthur before his death, titled Station Eleven. The troupe operates on a two-year cycle touring the Great Lakes region, performing Shakespeare plays and classical music, while Kirsten scavenges abandoned homes for props, costumes, and traces of Arthur in tabloid magazines. The troupe intends to reunite with two members they left behind, the pregnant Charlie and her husband Jeremy, at a small town. Upon arriving, they are disturbed to find that their friends are missing, and the town is now under the control of the Prophet, who rapes the young girls he claims as his wives. The troupe quickly leaves and goes off-route to the Museum of Civilization, a settlement where they believe they might find their missing friends. En route, they discover a young stowaway who fled the town, as she was promised to the Prophet as another bride. Shortly after, members of the troop begin to disappear until finally the entire troop is gone, leaving only Kirsten and her friend August. Frightened, they continue on to the museum, hoping to be reunited with the others. Okay, so let's take a moment to talk about post-apocalyptic storyline, which, which mostly centers on Kirsten, at least at this point, um, and this traveling symphony. Uh, what, what is what is your what is your thoughts on this stuff? I don't know about you, but having read um, Eye of the World somewhat recently, yeah. did this kind of make you think of the? I think they're the Tinks, right? Tinkerers. Well, Tu Tuathlon. Uh, yeah, they have different names. Yeah, it's like these traveling uh, way of the leaf uh, sort right. of uh, pacifists. Yeah, right. Just I, I, the similarity of like a traveling troop that is sort of disconnected from the other societies, like. It, it drew comparison there's no you know the pacifist part portion is definitely not <laughs> yeah the same but but it just got me thinking about that but well it's also connecting to a real world thing where in, in shakespeare's times a lot of theater was performed in this way you had traveling troops of yeah. actors who would go from town to town and put on productions and right. this comes back you know 600 700 years later in this book and is now all of a sudden a thing again so there's just something there's like a cyclical thing there that i like yeah and i think i've mentioned before but like i i kind of am a sucker and, and like you know i can tell when it's not done well but i really love time skips in stories because it gives a sense of scale and like weight to a story when when you get to see characters perspectives change characters grow and in this case like kirsten like we we there's these gaps for Kirsten so like she remembers some of before the pandemic and then there's like a few years that she doesn't remember and is sort of suppressed which is again like acknowledged a lot like this idea of like some people remember the past and some people don't and the people who do are maybe tortured more and uh, are not able to cope as well and th there's a lot of interesting stuff with that but I, I just love a time skip and there are multiple in this story that allow for like i said a sense of scale that you don't get if if it's just like you know the story happens in a few days and you know different stories are are you know obviously 
catered to different time time periods. But for this one, 20 years going by in a pandemic, a lot of things are going to change. Yeah, it's it's true. And like I was I was shocked. And at first I was like, I felt a little cheated. Right. 20 years later, boom, here's a new character. And I'm like, oh, I just got interested in Jeevan and this whole Arthur storyline and like everything that was going on there. And at this point in the book, like I didn't know how much to trust the author. Right. So you're like, oh, I feel a little bit cheated. This is interesting. But man, I wish I could have found out what happened to them. But I knew like I was like, OK, we're going to find out. Um, and it takes a while, though. It kind of takes a while before we circle back and start finding out what happened to, to this character because we have a lot of other characters to introduce. This is actually kind of an ensemble a lot of perspectives. Um, I haven't even talked about the POV that the book is written in. It's really kind of semi-omniscient in a way that uh, is not a very modern uh, convention right now, yet I think is employed really well here in the same way that like Stephen King writes, honestly, in, in, in that semi-omniscient tone where like he, she can dive into the, the psyches of different characters, yet she can give us knowledge like these people would all be dead. You know, like, who is that saying that? It has to just be the narrator because, or the, the omniscient narrator, because no one character has that perspective, that cosmic perspective. Um, so you get to employ things like that when you do this, which I think is cool. Um, and, and I think it's it's done right here. If you're going to do it, this is a good way to do it. Uh, oh, speaking to one thing you said, I had an exact quote. Uh, the quote is, the more you remember, the more you've lost. Um, and I thought that was really telling and uh, speaks to what you're talking about. Uh, and, and then, yeah, the effects of like PTSD and and how that can affect memory and aging, right? Like how over time things start to fade and there's a, the, the, the loss that is associated with that. Um, all very fascinating and, and, and just really well explored here. For me, like I, I, I really like this traveling troupe. I found them immediately interesting. I like that we describe all the like sort of petty interpersonal dramas that are playing out between them. And that's very approachable to me and makes them feel human. Um, it's like this, this group of people who live together and a lot of them date each other. And there's like, Oh, this person used to date this person. And then there's all this like pride in their, in their instruments. And um, it sounded very much like, uh, and I, I, I was in band and stuff when I was in like high, uh, junior high. Um, but I wasn't ever a part of a, a, a group like this. Um, but I imagine if you are, this this is probably really speaking to you because it felt very true to life, right? Yeah, and I love that they would address characters as their instruments. Yeah. The third oboe and then and the the first violin and then like was it the violins in particular? There was one where it was like um, they never wanted to adopt a former person's number. So like if the third violin or whatever left and you came in, you became the fourth violin. You didn't take their spot, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny because there's like this like history of that, but it's like only this one group that does that. I don't know. It's very interesting stuff. Um, let's move on. So unbeknownst to Kirsten, Station 11 is an unpublished passion project for Arthur's first wife, Miranda. 14 years before the collapse of civilization, Miranda left an abusive relationship and married Arthur, a friend from her hometown in coastal British Columbia, who has since become famous. As Arthur's fame as an actor hit its peak, Miranda realized he was having an affair with a woman who would become his second wife, Elizabeth. The night that Miranda discovers the affair, she walks out of her home and asks a paparazzo outside if he has a cigarette. The paparazzo turns out to be Jeevan. Years later, when Jeevan is trying to reinvent himself as an entertainment journalist, Arthur gives him an exclusive interview. 
He is leaving Elizabeth and their young son, Tyler, to be with another woman. Jeevan reflects on this while he and Frank are quarantining in Frank's apartment. After weeks, they realize that no one is coming to save them. Frank, who is a paraplegic, dies by suicide to spare Jeevan from feeling responsible for him. Jeevan embarks on a journey south and, after many years, finds a new settlement where he marries and becomes the town doctor. In year zero, one of Arthur's friends, Clark, informs Elizabeth that Arthur is dead. Clark and Elizabeth and Tyler happen to be on the same flight from New York City to Toronto to attend Arthur's funeral until it is grounded at the Severn City Airport due to the pandemic. Okay, let's let's stop there because that's like a ton um, to react to and I don't, I don't want to go on. Um, yeah, so Miranda um, is, is actually a really important character um, throughout. She's this first wife of Arthur Leander who is sort of the, the, the core of this book surrounds this guy. And uh, I wanted to talk about that. Like, why? Um, I have my thoughts, but I want to ask you. Like, why Why is Arthur Leander at the heart of the story? What role does he play? This, this like, womanizing, I think it's fair to say, you know, uh, philandering, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, guy who is just, who is just kind of shitty, um, but people like him. He's charismatic. Um, he's famous. Um, he, at different points is very important to people in their lives, but then he betrays people. And, um, he's also the guy who dies at the start of the book. So he's, he's already a dead character as we're, as we're learning more and more about his life. There's a reason why there's very little from Arthur's like personal point of view, because the people around him are more interesting than him himself, maybe. And there are interesting things about him. He's famous. He's an actor. He's, you know, done all these things and he deals with the things that a lot of actors deal with, with fame and that sort of thing. And there's, there's enough there to be an interesting and compelling character, but all of the satellite characters are much more interesting because they're, they're more real, you know, they're, they're, they're not some really famous, really lavish lifestyle who's dealing with, you know, art and fame. They're also like Miranda, for instance, is like expressing her art in a way that's so pure because it's not performative and it's not for anyone other than herself necessarily. And it is deep and it is important. And like the things that we get about it as time goes on and just the way that like Clark, eventually we get a lot more about him and, and like the way that he preserves life pre pandemic. And all of these characters have so much more going for them in my opinion. And that's why Arthur is sort of the keystone of the story, but he's not like, we don't care about his perspective as much as the people around him. It's interesting to to the way that all these people compare to Arthur because he, to me, always seemed to be kind of empty and right. like in he's he's desperate for attention. He's desperate to feel important. And yet he that that desperation and that desire um, makes him blind to things. Right. Like he's blind to. He's blind to what he has. Mm-hmm. I mean, time and again, we see the way he doesn't appreciate the women he's with. Um, and he's always looking to the next thing. And um, he people talk about how, like, when they're talking to him, they're like, is he putting on a performance right now? Like, yeah. Is he acting? That's my, 
that was my biggest red flag is that he's like he's putting on a performance in his everyday life he'll be in a in a he'll be at a dinner with someone having a conversation and be like boisterous and be performing so that the people who are like staring because he's famous are like seeing well and and she's she's setting up these like uh, these are like opposing sides of the creative world right like there's there's these kinds of people and then there's people who are more like miranda who have some sort of passion project that is is more important to her than it is to get famous and in fact she doesn't ever widely publish it which is an important plot point and yet that piece of art ends up being very important and i think that's why the book is drawn from that right that's why it's called station 11 i think we can we can get into i think there's multiple reasons but that's one of the reasons um and to, to speak on Miranda a little bit, um, I was really taken with her in the, I felt a lot of empathy and a lot of connection. Um, and just personally, um, I was, it was getting a little bit too real at times um, because she is writing a graphic novel that is set in this undersea. Um, and it's, uh, it's this underwater uh, science fiction-y pulpy, um, adventure story that she's drawing this art for and spending all this time on and she's working on it for years and um, I have been working on an underwater novel for a few years now <laughs> so as I was reading it I'm like Jesus sit a little bit close to home um, and, and but it was really cool for the book to be about the importance of something like that even when compared to the more societal accepted importance of someone like Arthur, who is like in these big movies and being up for rewards and stuff, which he never wins, I think notably, but he's been up for Oscars and stuff. And just like the, the value in both of those art forms. And um, I don't know. It's it, 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 her story is almost about like how that art, her station 11 meant a ton to her. And, and throughout her life, it was something that, was powerful and important and it ends up being powerful and important in both a good and bad way to Tyler and Kirsten and this one person's personal art having a personal connection with just two other people and yet can have massive implications to the lives of thousands if not more um, that's profound and that talks about the power of art in that way and how it can f be formative for people, how it can change people's lives. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think it's really cool. And, and, and there's this mystery about Miranda, like what happens to her. And unfortunately, she's one of the only people we follow who does die from the from the pandemic um, and tragically so. And. Uh, the mystery of the fates of all of these characters is is something that continues to interest me, right? Because we, we, we skip ahead and we don't know all these people who we've met, like what happened to them. I was really pleased with the decision to make it a graphic novel as well, right? Like as someone who really appreciates the medium of graphic novels and comics, mm -hmm. I loved that like we got the situations where people were like turning their nose up to it, not seeing it as real art and saying like, you know, I can't even get engaged with this story. And, and like... To draw attention to that, I think is cool because I, I, you know, it's out there. It's it's like it's becoming more popular to like. It's becoming more accepted, but like, it wasn't for a really long time. And I think still to this day, people will still put it in the category of like cartoons and and animation in general has has some of that too. And and uh, 
you know, it's just this throwaway pulpy sort of storytelling that, that like doesn't have a lot of significance. It's just printed on a 25 cent piece of paper and, and like, you know, people used to pick it up, but there's so much more to the storytelling that's there because of the availability of being able to get those stories out to people, right? Like the, the medium has allowed for some amazing storytelling. And obviously we've covered a lot on the podcast and uh yeah i just thought that was a great decision especially from a a novel that is like in a sense more literary and more interested in in the the concept of art when you're bringing in just another art form right into this tapestry that is talking about all kinds of different art forms um so another thing from this section that uh I, i i was thrilled to find out is the moment where Miranda goes outside and it's jeevan is there this guy that we we hadn't really touched base with in a while um, and all of a sudden we find out he's there because we heard like a throwaway detail that he used to be like in the paparazzi before he became uh, um, like a journalist. And then sure enough, he's at this house, he's at this party and he interacts with Miranda, who's this up- character who up till now has been totally disconnected only through Arthur connection. Um, so it's, it's it was always cool to see these little connections between characters. And that continues to happen uh, as the book progresses. And, and it's always a fun little reveal like, oh, shit, they knew each other. Our main characters actually met at this one point in their lives and didn't realize the significance of this meeting. One of the one of the main connections that I think we should draw at this point, too, is uh, there is this prophet that's been mentioned in, in Kirsten's storyline. And you know, he's raping young girls and like, it's like, it's very clearly like religiously motivated and there's some, some power to it. And then as, as we get a little further in the story, I think we've kind of gotten to this point, right? Where we're seeing that like Arthur, Tyler and Clark were all on the same flight. Together. Yeah. That's where that's my next part of the, the plot here. So let me read that. Clark, Elizabeth and Tyler happen to be on the same flight from New York city to Toronto to attend Arthur's funeral until it is grounded at the Severn city airport due to the pandemic. The passengers having nowhere to go, create a settlement in the airport and Clark becomes the curator of the museum of civilization where he gathers artifacts such as iPhones, laptop computers. While most of the airport survivors adapt to their new life, Elizabeth and Tyler embrace religious zealotry believing that the epidemic happened for a reason and spared those who were good. After two years, they leave with a religious cult. So let's just stop for a second and talk about that. That's that's what you were just talking about. And I love that (laughs) Elizabeth has this, and we meet her in the past. We meet her in a flashback for the first time, and she is the second wife of Arthur. We meet her when she's already sort of having this affair, and Miranda's there, and she knows that it's happening, and it's this kind of, terrible dinner party and that dinner party is important too because most most of the characters are there clark is there elizabeth is there arthur's there miranda's there jeevan's yeah. there and, and and kirsten is viewing it as a photo we were talking about earlier this this very important dinner party right and at this party she says i believe everything happens for a reason everything happens for a reason she says it multiple times and it just seems like kind of a banal thing that people say it's very common you hear this from people a lot especially people who are very religious um, and I love that it is the sort of the the beginning point of the main villain of our book <laughs> comes from this belief that everything happens for a reason and um, how that idea is almost poisonous. And when everything when 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 the society falls and she keeps repeating that over and over again as her little mantra to herself, it's like a comfort, right? Like. You know, God loves me. Everything happens for a reason. I must have been spared because I'm a good person. 
And she says that, and she says that, and her son, this very impressionable, up to this point, he's just playing video games and kind of just nothing, eight or nine year old. Um, he imprints that, and he it makes it it makes it part of his core identity, and he begins to believe that he was spared for a reason, and that reason is he is a prophet. And there's this massive reveal towards the end of the book that. Tyler is the prophet who has been doing all these heinous things, the son of Arthur Leander. <laughs> so for, if you think of the legacy there, it's like Arthur was a pretty terrible person. And then um, at the end of his life, I do like that he had decided he was going to like give away all of his wealth. And he had maybe changed his will. There was some indication that he was following through with that. He was going to give away all of his wealth and be the guy who, who, who gave it all away and went to live with his son. So like... I don't completely hate Arthur, even though he does some really despicable things. Um, but Tyler becomes terrible. And um, I, I, it's really interesting that he also had this page from station 11 and he names, he ends up naming his dog, the same thing and all this stuff that Kirsten imprinted on yet takes very different lessons from it. And the memory of his father is one thing, but then like his mother and her, her, everything happens for a reason uh, saying becomes just absolutely poisonous to this guy and he ends up like internalizing that and believing that anything he does is forgiven because it has been basically co-signed by god you are right and um boy do we see that happening in our real world all the time and i love that she is able to take that and say like this shit is actually really bad (laughs) uh kirsten has the the thought at some point that Maybe Tyler, the prophet, because he remembered the past, he remembered, she she speculated that he remembered all of the years from back back pre-pandemic in through post-pandemic. And she she's sort of thinking about how she, it's a blessing that she doesn't remember that one year gap and the way that that can change someone and the, the impressionable nature of like someone going through something like this. Like we see a few scenes where, Tyler sees like adults not handling the pandemic well and he sort of has these like glassy eyed moments where you're like oh shit like he's definitely internalizing this and you don't pick up on that right away until you learn get the reveal later I on. wanted to ask you when when did you know he was the prophet I don't think I knew until it was pretty much gotten to the point where it was obvious okay so I had a particular moment where I was a hundred percent I knew and then there was I had some moments before that where I was starting to suspect the moment I knew was the moment that he was preaching to the dead, the 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 airplane full of the dead people. Oh yeah, yeah, I knew by when, at that when point Clark as well, comes yeah. up to him and he's like doing this little sermon uh, to the dead people. I was like, oh fuck, he's definitely the prophet. A hundred percent knew at that point. I had I had some suspicions early on because I was wondering who's the prophet here because we had been hearing this mystery that he came from this place, this airport, and I was like, who could it be? And I thought like, could it be the son? And I just kind of had a moment where I thought about it. I had thought about it more. I probably should have realized it definitely was. But, like, I wasn't confirmed yet until this moment. Um, that was the moment. I was like, yeah, 100%. Well, and, and then that same, like, he does that sermon thing. And then I think in the, in the same chapter, they, like, Elizabeth and Tyler leave the airport. And so it's like that's, like, pretty much the the full-on reveal unless you didn't pick up on some of the smaller. I mean, like, I think that's most people would pick up on it there. But it was a, still a heavy reveal. And it's, like, the idea, like you said, the lineage of Arthur to then Tyler. And had had Arthur actually been there for his childhood, maybe something would have changed. Maybe some piece of him would have changed because he was there for Kirsten's, kind of. You know, not a lot, but he had an impression on her. 
Um, and like that idea of like the absent father and a lot that's of a, that's a good point because he what does he do he he ignores the signs of a heart attack we learn at the end of the book and goes out on stage anyway because he wants to perform he's called to perform and you're totally right like he almost dies for his art in that way and even though he talked a big game about wanting to be there for his son he ultimately isn't and he ends up dying in pursuit of this art that he is his entire life chased um so there is tragedy there right and and i think it's important um now i'm not a king lear expert i did read it in high school long long time ago um but i know that that book is all about legacy and about like you know uh it's it's tragedy right it's one of shakespeare's famous tragedies right so it is in and there's like references to leander playing king lear and wearing a crown and I think those two characters, if, you, if you're, like, really versed in King Lear, I'm sure there's a lot of similarities here um, and that he's this tragic figure. So um, I think that that's very specifically drawn. Also, uh, Midsummer's Night Dream, as mentioned early on, I thought that was very, there was very specific uh, correlations being drawn there, too. So um, if you're really, really into Shakespeare, I'm sure you can get a lot out of this that, that I was maybe missing because I actually have never read that one. I'm kind of aware of it, but I've never read it. Um, anyway... Um, Gosh, there's so much that happens. Let's let's move on to uh, the last bit of plot I have here, and then we can just kind of touch on you know any dangling threads we want to touch on. So in the present, Kirsten and August find a group of the Prophet's men holding Sayid, a member of their troop hostage. They kill the men and free Sayid, who explains that their father Dieter was killed, while another hostage escaped, warned the troop, and sent them to another road, explaining how they went missing. The trio leave for the Severn City Airport, but Kirsten is soon discovered by the Prophet. Just before he is about to kill her, he refers to the Undersea, a place from the Doctor Eleven comics. Kirsten quotes lines from Doctor Eleven, distracting the Prophet long enough that a younger sentry, having a crisis of faith, shoots and kills him before taking his own life. The trio continues to the Museum of Civilization, where they are reunited with Charlie, Jeremy, and the rest of the troop. Clark, who has lived in the museum for 20 years, realizes who Kirsten is, her attachment to Arthur, and that the prophet was Tyler Leander. Clark takes Kirsten up to the control tower of the airport, where, through a telescope, he shows her that there is a town to the south with electric lights, suggesting that civilization is beginning to take root again. Five weeks later, Kirsten leaves the Traveling Symphony for the town to the south. She gives one copy of Dr. Eleven to Clark's museum. He begins to read it and recognizes a scene that is borrowed from a dinner party which he, Arthur, and Miranda once attended. And that's the end of the book. Okay, so let's talk about just anything like that and then anything else we want to, we, we haven't touched on yet that we want to touch on because there's a lot. <laughs> uh, for, first thing I want to say is that I absolutely love the entire sequence at the airport it was one of my favorite parts of the entire book when when he land when uh, clark lands at this airport they all get sort of quarantined and then this group of strangers develops this little mini community and tries to survive i don't know i found that really fascinating someone who flies like a decent amount i've definitely had thoughts about like weird things happening in airports and like it's such a like weird liminal space we talk about a lot it's always really interesting and the idea of having to live in a place that is designed for you to be in in a very for a very transitory amount of time, 
Well, and and they talk about like the idea of like being stranded at the airport. Everybody's had that experience where like you miss a flight or something gets delayed and you're stuck. What if you were there forever? (laughs) And then being stuck there forever. And then having like, like I I kept thinking about like they jump 15, 20 years or whatever. And I'm like, holy shit, like seeing nothing but an airport for that period of time would be so, so like off putting for one. But, but like at some point it becomes a home and they create, and then it becomes like, oh yeah, this is person's hanging out in the, you know, in the food court and this person's over and, and it becomes sort of, you make it more than it was before. And I, I don't know, I found it to be really interesting too. I love that. All of that community. So and- many good details come out there. Like the, like the people, the slow way in which our, our accepted norms and laws and stuff like that start to fall, right? Like, when they don't want to like raid the kitchen for food because it's like illegal, you know, they don't want to steal. And then the guy's like, don't worry, I'll put it on my card. And he sets it down. And then it's like that card sat there untouched for a hundred days. And you're like, Oh shit. So like, this is like the last time someone potentially offered to pay for something on a credit card because credit cards are no longer a thing. And they don't know that yet, but like they're not at this moment. And like the, any sort of, uh, ownership of this food is long gone it is just it is just there now all these people are dead right so but the way that there are these like slow um abandonments of these accepted norms is so true to life like i I totally see things playing out this way like i believed the way things go in this book so much that I, i found it really powerful in that way i do think this final section is where it really turns into the pandemic post-apocalyptic story that you were expecting in a sense it's the transitory period we hadn't gotten right it's the true transition yeah although we get a little bit of it with jeevan in in the city a little bit of that right but but he, he and his brother are just like locked away in their apartment and they really don't experience much um right yeah but even even the other like storylines that are going on like the stuff where like uh kirsten and august are like out they've been separated from the troop and like they're de- they're running on the run from from the prophet and his men and you know that all feels in line with what you would expect and i'm not saying it's like reductive in that way i'm just saying that it's like these are the things that you expect to happen in a in a post apocalyptic story with like the like like people firing guns and the, like like not being able to reach understandings with each other and people being irrational and you know cults and powers that be like that and uh, but yeah specifically with Clark and everything that goes on in the airport I loved the 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 one of my favorite details you said the the terminal some of the terminal stuff one of my favorite details is that Clark decides to start this museum like that to me has always the the keepers of knowledge and stories always speak to me and I've always wanted to write a story that has a, a character like this at the heart of it where like you're you're preserving something something important and like Clark seemingly you know that's his life work at that point is just preserving what life was and and people are so fascinated by it and wanting to come back and see it and so the idea of a museum in that sense is, is and cool. it was undercut t- earlier in the in the narrative right where um the kirsten and and uh august meet a meet a character on the side of the like on the road who talks about the museum and he's like why like what's the point of any of that like it look around you that's all over with now kind of thing like so you know i, I love that like all this stuff is sort of analyzed from multiple angles right as much as it's presented as like being really cool it's also like there's this whole discussion about kids who are born after the fall do we educate them about what came before or not and there's this you know debate about it and ultimately it seems like they're landing on yes we should but like there is a debate to be had about it and i, I think it's interesting that the book engages in that 
Um, to speak about the sort of actual more actiony, post-apocalyptic, dramatic, you know, the prophet is chasing them and they're they're, you know, uh, Kirsten is really good at throwing knives and she kills, you know, she kills somebody with a knife throw. And um, I really like the tattoos, by the way. I thought that was really interesting. Um, that That's all cool. And, and in a way, it's, it's it is the more expected route to take. Um, yet it, it's informed by something un, unusual and that's her being part of this troop. And then, um, the, the thing that really stands out to me in that is the interview that she has with this guy who's writing a newspaper, um, like the first newspaper to really start back up. We, we imagine, and we get these direct interview moments written out in the book in like, a, 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 a you know, again, like a direct way, like, like. Uh, as if a transcription. And I love that uh, she's employing different forms of storytelling here to do that. And I think that's really clever to do. And again, we don't get it all in one go. We get chunks of it here or there when it becomes important to the story. Um, and what she very specifically does not explain the meaning behind her tattoos, the knife tattoos, um, to that to that guy who's interviewing her. And... Um, exploring why I think is interesting too, because she talks about how through studying the tabloids of Arthur, she has an idea about like a permanent record (laughs) and she has, she thinks about legacy and, and what is going to be remembered. And I think she realizes that if she talks about the fact that she has killed multiple people and that's what these things mean, she will forever be remembered as someone who killed people. And she doesn't want, like she hates that she had to do it. And she talks about when you think about when you, they asked her, like, when you think about, um, I think he says this time, what do you think about? Or the past, she says she thinks about killing. And it's the fact that she had to kill. And um, that was all off the record. So it's interesting, right? Because it's, it's an important part of her story and it's an important part of her identity, yet she doesn't want it to be a part of her legacy. And that's really, that's a cool distinction, right? Like, we can have things that are important to us, that are important to who we are and are something that we've had to grapple with and learn from yet we might not want everything to be part of our sort of permanent record that is the world's going to remember us by um and i don't know i thought that was an interesting nuance to explore in this setting of all settings another thing that that i feel like we haven't really addressed in terms of like what it means to the story is like the actual goings on of the dr 11 comics Mm. and the way that there's like parallel to the story that we're reading and like the importance of that the looking back at story and how even the author writing it at the time can't understand like how the lasting implications of these stories will affect the world. But the Dr. Eleven comics all allow Tyler basically to, to like justify a lot of his things along with his religious background. And for Kirsten, it's like this ongoing beam of hope and this idea of like life finding a way. And it's sort of that Star Trek idea that they talk about like survival isn't survival alone is insufficient i think which again that's drawing on a very genre you know pulpy star trek of all things yet it's she has it tattooed on her body because it's so important to her and you know it's even talked about like some characters are like why do you have that tattooed on it's so kind of cliche or whatever and she's just like no it's meaningful uh and that's kind of what this story is is it's back and forth right it's having the conversation it's not telling you to land one way or another on it but to, to where it lands to me, a creative, someone wanting to create it, it, you know, starts to lean into like the 
art being myth, sort of like art being that important. I think the story obviously comes down somewhere, especially with that quote, meaning survival isn't enough. Exactly, right? Like, so you strip away the modern world and you reduce everyone to survivalism and you're able to gain this perspective on our modern lives and how ridiculous a lot of it is and how you know everybody's kind of looking at their phones and not appreciating the the interconnectedness and the the ease in which we are able to travel and communicate um but at the same time it's not like when you take all of that away life is better um and and this book explores how that is ultimately the goal is you want to be in a place where that is possible you want those modern wonders. You want to be able to get on a plane and fly somewhere. You want to be able to instantly communicate with someone across the world and how that's actually kind of magical. And maybe just we should appreciate it a little bit more, but not that we should wish it wasn't the case. I actually, I, I had a um, quote that I pulled for the, actually the specific okay. scenario. So there's this part that says, and this is when he's looking out at the city uh, as the collapse of society is happening in the, in the apartment in Toronto, I think. Um, so Jeevan found himself thinking about how human the city is, how human everything is. We bemoaned the impersonality of the modern world, but that was a lie, it seemed to him. It had never been impersonal at all. There had always been a massive, delicate infrastructure of people, all of them working unnoticed around us. So true and so important today, right? Mm-hmm. As we hear about supply chain, as we hear about essential workers and uh, how our society is held up by people doing these kind of jobs, delivering things, you know, working in factories. Um, and, and, and society is held up by all these people and we take them for granted. And uh, if you start taking that away, everything falls apart. Um, and I think that is, that is a powerful thing to notice. And then it's interesting to talk about art in that regards to that, right? And we see artists here struggling because if you get into a creative life, Sometimes you will feel like the things you are doing are sort of uh, ephemeral or can be perceived as self-indulgent or not, you know, not concrete in the way that someone who works with their hands or works, you know, directly can see the effects of the things they're doing, like a doctor who's saving lives directly, like things like that all seem more important in some lights. Um, and yet this book explores the ways in which art is also important. Maybe not saying it's more important, but it is also important in, in its own way. And I love that you, you talked about how Miranda wrote this book. She never knows the effect it has. And and yet it, it could end up being profoundly important for someone like Kirsten, who could go on to become profoundly important. That's not confirmed, but it feels like it could be. And um, at the very least, uh, you know, unfortunately, Tyler. And uh, right. the, and unknown, the unknown that. effects of our art is a, is a fascinating topic to think about as someone who writes, right? Like who might have read a short story I wrote and had it like inform their life in some way and how could that play out for them in some way? And, and, and in some way I'll never know I could potentially affect somebody. 
I do I do love the dual sort of messaging here, right? Like this is bringing up this idea and then also asking you to analyze how this story is changing your perspective and how you will think of things going forward too. So, well, and to think about the content of your creations too, right? And like think about the ways they they can actually affect people. I think that is like kind of a next level thought as a writer because the first thing you're trying to do is just write a fucking story that makes sense and is entertaining. But the the next level of that is starting to think about the effects it could have, um, which is yeah, super fascinating. There, you were talking about Kirsten and like Tyler and their their connection to Doctor Eleven. I think we have to talk about that scene also at the end, where like his this child, this guard or young person, like turns on Tyler, ultimately shooting him in this like last moment where Kirsten's about to be executed. And, uh, you know, Arthur and Saeed are off to the side. And it's this really surprising moment. You hear sort of the cavalry coming in the background. There's like, uh, I think you can hear like the carts coming from from the troops. So they're like potentially going to show up at the last second. But he Tyler's like, they'll be too late. And ultimately, this kid turns and kills him. And I wanted to ask you, like, why do you think this kid did this? Yeah. So he is not he's not a true believer. He says that himself. Um, He's just sort of caught up in the things he's just going along with it it's a thing to do and he's regrets some of the stuff that he had to do and he at certain points he's like sort of crying and and seems uh, like he has a lot of guilt and that's hinting at what's going to come here and yeah i don't know i mean it could be has something to do with like the next generation right and the way that generations pass on to each other knowledge and they pass on they affect each other they fuck each other up right famously philip larkin talks about the way our parents fuck us up and we fuck up our kids in turn and um it, that's happening here, right? And um, I, I, I think that's what she's going for. And and you can see also that you can opt out, right? Like you can say, you know what? I'm not going to follow this thing. I'm going to make the decision for myself. And this kid does that. Well, it, interestingly, like he was a guard before that they had encountered, right. right? Yeah, he was on the way out of the city, yeah. If you really wanted to, which I don't think the book wants you to, but if you really wanted to, you could go in and say, Everything happens for a reason, just like Tyler believed, just like his mom believed. This kid that they had already encountered before comes back around and kills Tyler in this. You're going to create another Tyler one day with that thought, man. (laughs) Right. But what I'm saying is there's no like there's no rhyme or reason to it almost at some point like this. This child did it motivated. But at the same time, it was the only person who could have possibly done it in that moment. And and, and what is the what is the reason, I guess, is the ultimate question I, I think the reasons are the things we we make them ourselves like or understanding that reason and um purpose and fulfillment and legacy all of that is human all of that comes from within and is ultimately subjective and i think um clark really appreciates that i think he has a moment where he even talks about like that's his view of the world and I think that that's closest to the one that the the book is sort of espousing here. And so my my argument would be that the kid, um, his actions may seem cosmically linked, right? Just like how all these characters interweaving and how they're all connected can seem cosmic, but it's cosmic at the heart of it because of like this art thing, right? And how that almost is the web that interweaves all these people. And so in that sense, it's not cosmic. It's very human. Right. Or ultimately random, you know, ultimately chaos and randomness is what. And finding order within that. 
And then, of course, you can say like, oh, that's all cosmically driven. And I think that just comes down to personal belief and stuff. But exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It comes down to like the idea of free will. So let's get into that conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we'll have to save that for another time because we're running a bit long here. Um, I feel like I have so much left to talk about with the story and, and, and thoughts about what it means. And that's why I'm so glad that we are going to be talking about it for two more weeks as we tackle the show. We're going to be talking about the first five episodes, I believe it is, and then following that up with the next five episodes. Um, That way we can actually dive into some of the specifics of what goes on. It won't be a super deep dive into every single scene because it's just a lot of TV, but it's also not just a complete overview, which it would be if we tackled the entire season in one. So we're hoping that that's going to be a decent mix for this one. We're still figuring out how to cover TV on this podcast, but um, we hope that you will join us for that. If you enjoyed our discussion of Station Eleven, the book, uh, we would love for you to let us know in the form of a rating and review, especially if you're a new listener. Um, we, we would love for to have you leave us some sort of rating and review, whatever app you chose to listen on. Give us a like if you're on YouTube. Um, and then, yeah, beyond that, tell a friend. If you know someone who's read this book and likes it and you think they'd enjoy our coverage, share it with them because we are we are a fairly small uh, but scrappy, I like to think, uh, podcast. And uh, uh, we we definitely rely a lot on word of mouth. So if you can uh, tell a friend, that would be awesome. And definitely make sure to share our stuff on all social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And if you would like to support this podcast uh, in a financial way, first off, you're awesome. You're amazing. Thank you for thinking about that. Uh, we are on Patreon and we have lots of bonus content on there. We have uh, a way that you could get like a mug with our logo on it, actually a special logo that was designed just for Patreon. You can go check that out. Um, we have like t-shirt, hoodie, all kinds of different stuff, but then also just bonus episodes where we talk about adaptation adjacent stuff, other adaptations. Like if you ever like see that we covered like, oh, you covered Carrie from the 70s. Did you, have you talked about the new one? Well, we're going to be talking about the new one this month. So that's the kind of stuff we do over on our Patreon. And we'd love to have you support us on there. Patreon.com slash Ink to Film. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. Uh, I'm so excited to be back doing this. Uh, It feels like I am rejuvenated and regenerated and uh, feeling good, feeling better, uh, feeling excited for this year and this coverage. And I hope everybody sticks with us for this one and sticks with us throughout the year. We'd love to have you along for the ride. Uh, And until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.